Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Yet it speaks so much to us. The big idea of the text is simply this. Your appearance makes a statement. So we consider the non-vocal, the non-verbal communication that is communicated by our appearance as Christians. And so that's the, that's the kind of, in a general sense, the overarching theme of this section of the text. And so although the series is called Female, Female Vocals, we are considering in, under that heading, under that banner, we're considering at this stage the non-verbal communication. And it's not exclusively female in this instance, so we'll see how it does marry together with that of men. But um, there is so much in here and there is so much that speaks to us. I just, I can't be on one of my long intros like I normally do. So I'm going to pray and we're going to jump in. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Ah, Thank you, Lord, for the presence of your Holy Spirit, who is the paraclete who dwells in us to help us and aid us in relationship with you, empowering us, Lord, enlightening our minds and our understandings, bringing to our understanding all truth, speaking of Christ to our souls, testifying to our spirits that we are children of God. We thank you for the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit who enables us to do what we cannot do of ourselves in our own strength, in our own flesh. We realize that you are present with us and even as we open your word, word we have the presence of your holy spirit to enlighten our minds and personally reveal to us who you are what a blessedness what a joy divine as we lean on your everlasting arms thank you lord and i pray that you would speak to our hearts lord i am incapable I am unable, I feel like Moses with a speech impediment. How can I even attempt to talk to your people on your behalf? And yet, Lord, I realize that, like Isaiah, you're able to take the coal and cleanse my lips. And so, Lord, here I am. Use me today, I pray. Speak to our hearts. Enliven the hearts of your people, Lord, with the revelation of yourself, your will and your ways to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1 Corinthians 11, we're looking at verses 1 to 16. And I think what I'm going to do is, having kind of given you the, 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 the general idea, the big idea, um, just highlight a few headlines, and then highlight a few headlines that we're going to look out for as we go through, and then we're just going to read through the text.
And as we do so, we're going to endeavor to make sense of it. So in this text, we see that there are three, thank you, Brad, main headlines. That of gender distinction. That of the sanctity of marriage, number two. God's order in creation, number three. Within that, we could consider also the place of the family. We could also consider Christian chastity. So that's a word that we don't really kind of hear used very often. Christian chastity. But ultimately, all is to the glory of God. All is to the glory of God. So we'll see gender distinction, the sanctity, the sacredness, the supremacy of marriage, and also God's order of creation. It applies to us, whether we are married, whether we are single. It doesn't matter what our relational status is. This text speaks to us and it speaks volumes. And so, let's have a read through. I'm reading from the ESV. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, as a reminder, one of the things we clarified last time was the, the context 
into which Paul was writing. Not just where does chapter 11 sit within all of the chapters of Corinthians and how does it relate. And we went through that last week. And so I recommend you get the podcast. We also established the fact that culturally, the cultural context was quite distinctly different from the context of our culture that we um, enjoy today or experience today. Maybe we don't enjoy it so much. And one of the things that were characteristic within the culture was that appearances had a very clear and definite statement to others that encountered you. And so for women that were married, they would veil their head as a visible indication of their marital relationship. In the same way that, uh, in somewhat of the same way that a wedding ring might communicate to someone that I am married and I'm unavailable, the veil would do likewise. We also recognize that within the culture, for unmarried women who were respectable, they would wear long hair as also a sign of their respectability and their propriety. So as a single woman wearing long hair, she was showing a man, look, if you're going to step to me, step to me properly. Some of you women can say amen to that, right? If you're going to step to me, if you're going to come to approach me, approach me properly. Don't approach me as if I'm just some loose woman that you can just kind of talk to short words and have your way with. That's not me. I'm a respectable citizen. I'm a respectable woman. Amen. All right. Also within the culture, we saw that those who were salacious, who were endeavoring to give an appearance of being independent, um, unrestrained, sexually available, they would have, often have short hair. In fact, the temple prostitutes would have their hair shaven. And within the culture, going back to the laws of Augustus, there was a law that was passed that if a woman was found to be in adultery, she would have her hair shaven as, a, as an indicator of her, an indication of her looseness, as it were. And so this helps us to have a kind of picture of, okay, let's now reference the text in that context. Let's reference the text in an, in an understanding of that culture. That's our job today. Now, for those of you who were here last week hearing me read from the ESV, you may be reading from a different um, translation. And you notice that where I read wife, your translation didn't have wife. Anybody note that today as I was going through? Right. So your translation may not have had wife. I said specifically as I started, I'm reading from the ESV. NIV, New King James, many other translations don't have that. The ESV, which is a more recent translation, made a point 
of inserting or using, not inserting, but using or translating the Greek word for woman and likewise the Greek word for man as husband and wife in that situation, in this text, um, in these particular verses. And there is a good reason for why they've done that and it actually helps us to understand what's going on in the text. So again, based on the context in which it was written and the understanding of the culture, we will see as we go through that it actually is very helpful and a more accurate translation to have the words translated in that way. Amen? So verse 1. Now I'm going to go through this because this is a mini-series, not an epic. And so take notes. Make sure you subscribe for the podcast, but I'm not going to repeat a lot as I go through. Yeah? All right, good. You've had your warning. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Implicitly, don't follow the world. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain traditions even as I delivered them to you. So people say that Paul was being quite gracious here. They say that it was just a a common way of uh, making somebody comfortable when you want to deal with them. Yeah, I commend you. Yeah, okay, you ready? And then he lays in. Now, there may be a little more to it than that, because one of the things we see throughout 1 Corinthians, that Paul is responding to certain issues that they have written to him about in a letter. So, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7, you'll see, now concerning the things that you wrote to me. So a number of the things that he's dealing with as he goes through 1 Corinthians are responses to issues that he's had communication with the Corinthians about already. And so this issue of Christian appropriateness within the cultural context it appears maybe something that he's already communicated to them about and they've actually taken on board what he said and so he's commending them for that and one of the reasons we see that that is quite likely to be the case because in verse 17 he contrasts of chapter 11 here and he says in the following instructions I do not commend you so at the top of the text he's saying Okay, cool. You guys, you've listened to what I've said. But in these issues, in verse 17, you haven't. And so because of that, we're more inclined to suggest that, actually, this was more than just a figure of speech where he's kind of making them feel comfortable for a, a rebuke. But he's actually acknowledging the fact that, I've given you instruction about this before, and you have taken them on board. The reason now he is revisiting it is to reaffirm and clarify what he's already said to them. But I want you to understand, verse 3, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. We could spend the whole day on just this verse. One of the things that characterizes Paul's letters to the Corinthians is that he has a strong Trinitarian theology that he communicates. He 
communicates the Trinity in practical real terms. The fact that there is one God manifesting three persons, eternally coexisting. And so right here, he references, he anchors and focuses the text in the light of the fact that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is a husband and the head of Christ is God. Now, consider this. What this verse communicates to us is that our social interaction as men and women, our social interaction as husbands and wives, single people, married people, our social interaction as the community of God, the people of God, takes precedence and is modeled on the community that is the Trinity, which is the Godhead. There's a lot that can be said about that. God is a community. I saw a um, video the other day, Christian rapper called Pro, and he's got one of his boys on there, Andy Mineo. And I can't remember the name of the song, but it's Pro featuring Andy Mineo. You can Google it. And you see at the end of, the, um, at the end of Andy Mineo's verse, he says one of the reasons that we, ex- we expound community is because God's one. And he ends his verse like that, and he walks off from the camera. And I was like, whoo, love that. Trinitarian theology. Trinitarian theology has been a mainstay, a fundamental and important aspect of Christian doctrine since the church was birthed. As much as we in our finite minds wrestle with understanding we accept that this is how God has revealed himself to us and so it's not a matter of understanding it's a matter of simply submitting by faith to God's revelation of himself amen now in this we understand this the father is one with the son the son is one with the spirit They are equal. They are equally God. John 1.1 would make absolutely no sense if that were not true. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The word was with God. And the word was God. To the point where. In some translations, so the New World translations as used by the Jehovah's Witness, actually corrupt the text and say the word was a God. Now, that cannot be true. It cannot be that the word was a God and with God. Consider some verses with me. In Isaiah... 41, 43, and 44. I love these chapters because God bigs up his chest. 
It's like when he talks to Job. And where was you when I flung the stars in and I stretched out, rolled out the sky? The span of my hand. Where, where was you? Feeble man. I love it when God bigs up his chest. Isaiah 41 verse 4 who has performed and done this calling the generations from the beginning I the Lord the first and with the last I am he oh my gosh Isaiah chapter 43 verse 10 now you can read the context to actually get the juice of this I'm trying to keep it moving Isaiah 43 verse 10 you are my witnesses declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. There is no other God but the Lord. Isaiah 44 verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, the word Lord there, all caps the covenant name of God. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. None. The first commandment. You have no other God before or beside me. I am the Lord your God. So we clearly see that, yes, the Old Testament gives us, on the face of it, um, what they call a monotheistic, one God, revelation of God. But even within that revelation, we understand that we are talking about a compound unity. A unity of many parts. Now, the reason I picked those verses is because we see how they correspond with the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1 and verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. Now, if you understand what that actually means, that's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So he said, I am the first and last. Speaking into a different context, I am the Alpha and Omega, the A to Z. Says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, again. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And just in case we didn't note those well enough, in Revelation 22, verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So in Isaiah 44, verse 6, you don't have to turn back there, listen. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Oh my gosh, too much. The Lord, the King of Israel 
and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Do you see any correlation? Do you see any relationship between this verse in Isaiah and the verses we just read in Revelation? Jesus is God. One with the Father and with the Spirit. Boy, you just have to meditate on that. Would transform your life. Jesus is God. And so we recognize that they are one. They are equal. And yet in this verse, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians 11, we see what communicated as being functional subordination. Functional subordination. So they are one. They are equal. One is not better than the other. One is not greater than the other. But from a functional point of view, there is an order. It's an order that communicates precedence, not superiority. It's one that communicates priority, not equality. So the father is not superior to the son. They are one in value. They are one in essence and substance. They are one in quality. The father is not better than the son. But he proceeds, he takes precedence over the son. We see that they are not unequal, they are equal. And yet the father takes priority. And this is played out in, you see this in Matthew 26. Father, not my will, but yours be done. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 to 28. That God, having put all things into his subjection, when he has subdued all things, he will present them in subjection to God. And so we see a functional, a practical submission. And this is the reference point by which the relationships that Paul goes on to communicate is actually anchored. Christ is the head of every man. Does every man submit to Christ? No. Does that make him any less Lord of all? He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The wife is the head of her, sorry, the head of a wife, Freudian slip, boy. Woo! Oh, gosh. The very thing I'm trying to preach against. <laughs> the head of a wife is her husband. Now, this is our first instance where we appreciate and understand that it makes sense to use the word wife here and husband. This is not saying that the head of every woman is a man. 
that would mean that in every facet of society, society, women could not lead. Whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in government, whether it's wherever, it would suggest that woman can't lead. A man could get on a bus, woman bus driver, nah. Sorry, can I get another driver, please? I don't want you driving me anywhere. This is not what's being communicated. Unfortunately, it is such that throughout the years, people once had the impression that this is what the text was saying. Now, you know when you was in school and you learned about the suffragettes and Emily Pankhurst and fighting for the, the, the right to vote and... It's because people took this text to suggest that, you know what? Women are a second-class citizen. Make the men vote because men are leaders in society. Don't give women the vote. This is not what's being communicated here. We recognize that it speaks of the marital relationship It speaks of the order that God has established, starting with marriage. Remember, human history starts with a wedding. Men and women, when made by God, were first married. And so it is the precedent in terms of the highest point of human relations between men and women is seen in marriage. This is communicated in Ephesians 5. That marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. The sanctity of marriage. We also recognize that this order is true within the family of God. And there's a Important reason why those two areas of life in particular must hold this order. Because those two areas of life are the cornerstone and foundation for all of life. It is in the home that a child looks up and is supposed to see a picture of a relationship that glorifies God, that reflects the image of God. That demonstrates God's order and how we are to relate to one another. So the, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and so gave himself for her. That sacrificial, committed, dying to self kind of love. That sees a husband nourish his wife as his own body. Now, that is countercultural. People want to look at these texts and say, Paul, you're such a chauvinist. He was a bigot. Amongst the Romans, Jews, and Greeks, women were second-class citizens. Each morning, a Jew would get up and say, thank you, God, that I'm not a woman or a dog. The Greeks would have a wife merely as a, a, a house matron and someone to raise the children. It was legal for them to have other relationships as men. The Romans were not much better. 
And so God has ordained that in the home and in the church that the picture of relationship will be so clearly painted to his glory that it then exudes an influence upon the rest of society. And so a man who goes into a workplace where he has a woman manager doesn't have to feel insecure because in the home he already understands. In the church he's already seen the order of things. He knows who he is. He recognizes his identity in God and doesn't have to feel inferior or intimidated because that has already been established in his heart and life from the point of childhood. That's, that was the original plan. That's how it was meant to be. The church is the ground and pillar of truth. The home and the church are supposed to be the two places where people are able to see the glory of God truly manifested and revealed. And so this is why it applies uniquely to those environments. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we see the application of the principle to the church. At the moment, we're looking at the home. And how that is to be reflected in the congregation, the worship experience of the church. So it makes sense to say the head of a wife is her husband. Adding greater clarity, helping to avoid misunderstanding and misapplication. But we recognize that some wives do not submit to their husbands. <laughs> some husbands would say, some? Hmm. And in a culture where we have a matriarchal society, where the woman is, in our culture, most highly esteemed. Most highly esteemed. We recognize the conflict and the challenge in relation to the very notion of a wife submitting to her husband. Not trying to hear that chauvinistic talk because, you know what, I'm a female boss. Huh. I don't need no man to be telling me nothing that I know for myself and can do for myself. And this was one of the issues that was prevalent within the culture in Corinth, where you had this independent ladies. They had their own Beyonce of their time, you know. They had their songs. And the fact of the matter is that the women... The married women in the spirit of independence were casting off their veil, flashing their hair. I'm a free woman. I'm an independent woman. What? Can't tell me nothing. And Paul was like, that ain't, that ain't becoming. That isn't righteous because not only are you dissing your husband, you are dissing God because God set it like this. He set the order. This isn't just a cultural thing. This is ordained by God. 
And so how can you say that as his, his people, you worship him and extol him and submit to him and yet are so blatantly and visibly disregarding and disrespecting his order that he's established? It's a mixed message. It's a contradiction in terms. So you know what? Let me just reaffirm to you. Wives, your head is your husband. Now, I mean, we went into Ephesians 5 and, you know, Pastor Rob, I'm not going to prolong. But evidently that doesn't mean the chest-beating, Neanderthal, knuckle-scraping husband that just sits down, bring me my food. Have you washed my clothes? I'm going out. When are you coming back? Don't ask big man no questions. No, that isn't the picture of sacrificial, nurturing love that the Christian husband is supposed to portray. So this is this isn't endorsing chauvinism on one side. Just as much as it is speaking against feminism on the other side. It speaks against both. So Although some wives don't submit to their husbands, we recognize that Christ submits to the Father, and that's our example. And that's all of our examples. The submission of Christ to the Father. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, we established last week This is an issue of gender distinction. This is addressing women. No, men trying to look like women. Men are not supposed to look like women. Men are not supposed to... This whole trend of the metrosexual. Men are supposed to look like men and not confuse God's order of of creation as he has established it. God made man and God made woman and he made us different. And so those differences are supposed to be celebrated and enjoyed. How many of you have ever been to them places and you see them unisex toilets? You know there's just something about that that just don't really make sense, right? Unisex toilet. Now, in, it basically, I mean, I don't even think I've been into one. I felt just too scared what I would see. <laughs> unisex toilet. You go in a unisex toilet and it's just got all cubicles. Yeah, evidently. All cubicles. But you know that when the, when the ladies go to the toilet, when I say ladies, because you know it's always en masse. And that's something that us men will never understand. Why does it take two, three of you to go toilet? There's, there's the, the girly, um, you know, attention that goes on around the mirror. Which could involve anything. From touching up makeup to fixing clothes. Now, I don't want to be walking into a unisex toilet and seeing no lady fixing up herself in there. 
That doesn't make sense to me. Now, I'm not saying that this text speaks against unisex toilets. Never use it. It's ungodly to use a unisex. No, of course not. But what I'm saying is it demonstrates a trend in our culture to try and homogenize male-female identity and recognize that, you know, there is no difference. So let me throw a couple words at you. On one hand, you have in the church what is called the egalitarian view. Egalitarian view. And it says that men and women are equal and yet they are not different. There's no difference between men and women. Whatever a woman can do, a man can do. Whatever a man can do, a woman can do. That's how God made us and that's how we feel it should go. And so the egalitarian view will promote that the woman is not merely to submit to the husband, but the husband is supposed to submit to the woman. And if she's not having it, then he's got to hear that. And they have to have a, a relationship of give and take. On the surface, that sounds like it makes sense, right? Every relationship's got to be a relationship of give and take. But what happens when you have two people, no third deciding party, no casting vote, and you absolutely disagree? Then what happens? And a decision's got to be made. Who has the final say? Well, in the egalitarian household, it's the woman. The egalitarians will promote women as pastors. Whatever a man can do, a woman can do. Whatever a woman can do, a man can do. So they recognize that there is no difference. Now, there is a difference between men and women. That is why God made man and woman. Egalitarian view one side, complementarian view the other side. Men and women are equal. Hold on, isn't that what the egalitarians say? Equal? Aha, yes, that's right. We have a lot in common. And yet, the complementarian says men and women are equal, but different. Now, you don't have to be a biologist, you don't have to be a consultant doctor or a scientist, you don't have to be a brainiac to recognize that men and women are different. Am I lying? Men and women are different, right? And there are some things that women can do better than men, and there are some things that men can do better than women, and so therefore we're equal. We're equally Strong and equally weak in different ways. Now we'll talk some more about gender distinction as we get down into the text. But fundamentally, Paul's saying, look, don't blur the lines. This whole Calvin Klein andro androgynous looking model, like you don't know whether it's a man or a woman, a woman or a man. No. Allow your gender distinction to be obvious. And for us, in our neck of the woods, that might not be such a huge issue. In other contexts, that might be more of an issue in terms of appearance. 
But even in our own neck of the woods, it is somewhat of an issue in terms of roles. So I know, in terms of attitudes, single women would like men to be men. And take the initiative and stop faffing about. Now, I'm talking about gender distinction in terms of attitudes. In terms of a masculine attitude as ordered by God, inherent within every woman is the desire to see a man lead. Now, she might not like it, and that goes back to the Garden of Eden. After the fall, God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. That ain't going to mean like, oh, you're going to want to sleep with him every minute of the day. You want his place of prominence. Hence the battle of the sexes. But within, inherent within every woman, there is a desire to see men lead. And that is no less true amongst single people. It's not just true of the context of marriage. And one of the ways... Single women want to see single men lead is stepping up. And if you've got an interest, express your interest clearly. Do so decently and righteously. And don't send mixed messages and fool with a woman's emotions. Now, some of you ladies are trying to be like all demurred, like <laughs> when you want to jump and shout right now. But this is an issue. Am I lying? Amen. Thank you. Thank you, bro. This is an issue. Because guys can be very backward in coming forward and yet want to send confusing messages. Be a little flirtatious, be a little over-friendly. Girl starts to think, oh, I wonder if he's, um, well, Lord, is, is something going on here? Tutus, texts stop, phone calls stop, greetings stop. All of a sudden... Girls left confused. For like past year, we've been like building up a good friendship and things look like they were like, what in the world's going on? It's in the text. I'm here. I'm going to deal with the issue. Guys, listen. Single guys. As a single man, single women want to see some kind of gender distinction in your life. They want a man to be a man. You know, you got chauvinism and you got feminism. And for the man in the middle somewhere, you got chivalry. Which is a man who knows how to honor a woman to treat her righteously and decently. Who are not going to play around enjoying the relational, emotional intimacy that is not warranted at that stage of friendship because no intention has been declared now 
Hmm. It's funny. Shabazz, where's Shabazz? Shabazz hollered at me this week. He said, oh, bruv, there's a program that you need to see, you know. It's this program on BBC Three. Um, it's called Strictly Soulmates. You watch that, bro? And it had three Christians on there. It's a, it's a mini-series. Oh, there it is. It's a mini-series. You knew it was going to come in, didn't it, bro? Mini-series that focused on three Christians, um, two ladies and a guy, who single Christians. Um, it happened to be that they were all 27-year-old. I don't know why, how that worked out, but they were all 27 years old. And they were endeavoring to try and um, change their single status. And so you kind of follow their journey in terms of meeting people and so on and so forth. And it made for very interesting viewing. And one of the most common, common, common uh, complaints, concerns, issues that is raised amongst single people, both men and women, is how do you righteously and decently get from being single to the altar? That, that sort of ground in between seems like a minefield, no man's land that just swallows everyone who dares to try and attempt to get into it. And those who escape alive are blessed. <laughs> Bruv, how much time have I got left? Because I need to pace myself. All right, so there's going to be an extra week on this. Now, it's understandable to a greater extent that, you know what? It's going to be difficult because culturally, we don't live back in the 40s and 50s when they had a different standard of culture, where there was courtship as the norm. And the girl and the guy would sit on the porch as the dad is in the living room beside them. With the shotgun. <laughs> Listen, I got two daughters and a double barreled shotgun. <laughs> Things ain't like that no more. Father ain't even in the house for a girl to get any kind of guidance from. How should I even begin to be relating to other guys? let alone to be able to kind of give any kind of support, any kind of reference of a, of, a, of a role model by which a young lady can get some kind of measure of how a woman's supposed to be treated. And so we see this challenge. Courtship is it's, it's a, it's a foreign word. We talk about courtship around here and for, it took about 18 months to two years for people to actually begin to get the understanding of courtship. We done a, we done a um, seminar, a single seminar, and we tried to break down the difference between courtship and dating. Dating is worldly. Courtship is an absolutely different thing. So let's call it what it is. Don't try and rebrand courtship and say, well, it's Christian dating. So, but how do you, how do you move ahead? How do you build a relationship? Well, look. 
We recognize that. One of the things that's going to help to bring clarity is when single men be men. Not merely boys with beards. When they take responsibility for themselves and their feelings and their emotions and also for the feelings and the emotions of their single sisters. In 1 Timothy 5.2 it says that the young men are to treat the young women as sisters with all purity. With all purity. Not just physical Emotional purity. And so often we have to deal with the casualties of ladies who have been misled, led up the garden path, misdirected, false expectations and hopes raised because a brother's not being responsible for how he interacts. And the kind of feelings that he's provoking and stimulating. And so, what should men do? Well, fundamentally, you get to know a person. Get to know a person as friends. And during that process, don't overplay things. Because it's horrible when it doesn't work. Women, as a generalization, tend to be more emotional than men. Guys, if you didn't know that, now you do. And so where we can be very kind of matter of fact, rational, standoffish, we can engage in all the banter and so on and so forth and Send of all of these messages. And any of you guys familiar with the, um, the book, The Five Love Languages? Yeah? Now listen, that book was originally designed for married people to help them communicate better, to recognize each other's um, love languages, and be able to really um, like get on in a more deeper, connective way. That's, I think it was by Gary Chapman. I looked at the book, I read the book, and I said to myself, Whoa, single guys need to know this stuff. Because it, it talks about um, the love languages. It talks about listening, buying gifts. It talks about touch. And, and then the other two. Now, as much as that can help a married man interact with his wife and a wife interact with her husband. The reason why this is so important amongst singles is because what happens is single people begin to communicate with one another in these love languages and they're sending unspoken messages. This is particularly true of men. We can be less perceptive. We can sometimes be naive to be generous or just plain irresponsible because we love the attention. And send mixed messages. Send the wrong messages. Using these love languages. So we're on the phone. Blessing T-Mobile. Three hours. 
Four hours talking to this friend. 11 o'clock at night till 2 in the morning. What kind of, what unspoken message? It don't matter what the nature of your conversation is. What does that communicate to the woman? Buying gifts, compliments. Now I'm not saying that we're supposed to be just like pieces of wood. (laughs) What happens is, Single people begin to communicate with one another in these love languages. And their sense of a compliment in a woman can begin to stir some emotions, guys. Boy. I don't know how I'm going to get out of here alive today, boy. <laughs> Men them are going to be outside. <laughs> it's all right. My back is broad. <laughs> Let's go. But seriously, get to know someone. Get to know someone in a purely platonic sense, in a purely appropriate way, in a way that doesn't, even the manner in which you do it, doesn't send the wrong messages. And to draw an illustration from the testimony of a friend of mine um, who lives out in California, he was like, you know what? I was hanging out with this young lady socially. It wasn't even a thing where, you know, we were having date nights and going off to restaurants and cinema and I'm thinking, should I put my arm around it? It wasn't nothing like that. It was just getting to know one another socially. And doing it socially provides clarity, accountability, safety. Getting to know one another socially. And we just began to realize we had a lot, a lot in common. And I'd be teaching a class on photography and how it can be used as a ministry, and she does photography, and she would come and join in. I'm part of the, the sound team, and she, she, she's inter- And all of a sudden, I just used to find that, you know what, this girl was around often, and we were really clicking, and we were getting on. And it came to a point where, as a man, I had to stop and say, okay, um, you know what? I'm beginning to get ideas here, and... I'm beginning to kind of feel a kind of little stirring of interest towards you as more than a sister. Um, And I'm just letting you know, and it's something that I'm praying about and really just wanted to know, is this just me? And I need to kind of just make some space between us because you ain't got no ideas like that? Or is that something you're willing to pray about also? Now, at that point, she could have said, are you drunk? This is what I've been working at. Not really. (laughs) But she was like, you know what? Actually, no, I don't feel for you like that. No, she didn't say that. But she had the opportunity to, right? She had the opportunity to, and then it could have just nipped things in the bud. They could have put a little bit more appropriate distance between them, and then things would have just moved forward fine. So the man taking the initiative in that instance, making himself vulnerable. All right, let's, 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 what's going on here? Is this going anywhere or do we need to kind of, because I'm beginning to feel a little stirring. So she responded, yeah, kind of feeling like that myself. 
And so he's like, okay, let's not talk to each other for a week. Let's fast and pray and then begin to talk and see where we go from there, from there. And he was like, hmm. During the course of that week, he was able to wrestle with the Lord and consider, am I actually ready for marriage? Because even this could be the perfect woman. But if I know that in myself, I'm not ready for marriage, then you know what? I need to, this is what I've been working at. Not really. <laughs> and sometimes as guys, we can want our cake and eat it. We want our singleness, but we want relationship. And we know that we're not ready to give up our single status. And things in the bud, they could have put a little bit more appropriate distance between them. But the friends with benefits. Now, obviously, we're not saying that in the full extent that the people in the world say it because they're on another thing, but we're the church. And he came to that point where he's like, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm ready to be married, man. I'm ready to consider taking to my side a wife and all that that entails. And it was a week for them. It could be longer. That's not definitive. But you pray and you seek God and you ask God, am I ready to be married? You seek the word and you look at what is it that a man is supposed to be in marriage? What is a husband supposed to be like? Am I ready to step up to the plate and put my wife first before my friends and before my Xbox and before leave and cleave, forsaking all others? Does that mean you ain't never going to see your friends again? No. But they fall in to place in order. I don't even know where I am right now with time. Zero. It hasn't been an hour, has it? Has it been an hour? Are you lying? Time flies when you're having fun, right? Okay, let me try and wrap this up somehow. Um, so anyway, just to finish the illustration, as helpful as it might be, came back together and began to talk and said, look, you know what, I really have peace with the idea of us um, beginning to kind of to just court. Um, we know each other as friends. They'd been on a missions trip together. They went to, um, uh, where's that place? Is it New Orleans? Um, and they, where they had the big flood. New Orleans? And they went down there together and he said that he watched her working and he was just like, oh my gosh. This is the real deal. She, they were going into houses that were just filled with silt. And that is everything that you can think of up to the waist, wading in and clearing out stuff. She was in there, sleeves rolled up, jeans on, hair tied back, getting stuck in there. And I mean, we're talking about, it's just not mud and dust. It's filth and feces in there. And it was like, this girl is hardy. She's ready for ministry. She knows how to do them thing. Because he's a ministry guy. And he was able to see her again in social contexts. And to be able to get a measure of, hmm. Yeah, this, this is, she ain't perfect. But she's definitely got the values and convictions of a woman that I can take to my side and say, yeah. 
let's do this thing called married life. And so they courted, they talked further, they talked about values, they talked about vision of for life and what that might look like. And at this point, they were still not, okay, you're, you're my man and I'm your girl and you're my girl. And it, it wasn't that yet. Until the point when they could say, hmm, okay, I know this person well enough to say that I'm ready to give myself to them 100%, completely and unreservedly. And having done that, they were able to say, okay, look, obviously during that time they kind of met families and people met friends and were able to kind of get references. <laughs> In the multitude of counsel, their safety, too many people are relying on their own judgment, which is emotionally distorted both men and women. You lose your powers of perception when you're floating on cloud nine. And so don't rely on yourself, but speak to other people. Like, see how they interact around their family. See how they interact, interact amongst their friends. See how their friends regard them. That's going to say a great deal about the substance of the individual. Because they're going to be one thing to you. Everyone knows how to play the game when it comes to making impressions. Whew, I feel like I spent so long in this, man. All right. So, what's it about? Men being men. Taking the initiative. Taking the lead. And it's not just in terms of developing romantic relationships. It is in the life of the church that great opportunity has been ordained by God to train men to be men. People say, well, some people as single people are not really inclined toward marriage. All this talk about the primacy of marriage and husbands and wives is wasted on them because they ain't never going to be married. But you know what? What we see from scripture is the qualities of a good husband makes a good brethren in the church and good citizen in the community. Likewise, the qualities of a good wife does the same for that individual in community. And so as we impart these principles to men and women, they are growing in Christ-likeness, even if they don't end up being married because that ain't what they're called to. They've been given the gift of singleness. Amen. But it's not wasted. And so, I guess, men, it was your turn today. Next week, it will be the women. And um, if you ain't going to be here next week, thank God for podcasts, yeah? Gender distinction. Men ain't supposed to look like women in action, appearance, or attitude. We're supposed to be distinct. We'll pick up from there next week as we consider what further is said about the sanctity of marriage, the order of creation, Christian chastity. Amen? Lord, help us. Let's stand.